you know, there's one client where we raised the price 86%. And so they said, you know, they gulped. They had, there was a big silent moment in the room. They gulped and said, our customers won't pay. I said, well, maybe some won't, but some will. So we just got to figure out who that is. Um, and so we went through the process of identifying their target audience. And be, with that price increase, though, it reduced the amount of volume they had to sell by 70% because now they have more margin, right? So now we don't have to work night and day to sell a thousand units. Now we only have to sell 300 units to actually make a profit. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode. We've got a great one in store for you. In case you happen to miss the last episode, here's a quick snippet, and then we will get on to the show. My long story short, I had my first business. I was in the fitness and wellness industry for about 17 years, and I was really good at that. Um, but what I found is I was not good at business, meaning I, I didn't have the tools and the resources to really run a business. Um, and then on the personal end of things, just due to my personal life kind of falling apart, going through a divorce with an infant and a three-year-old. Um, so I really, when I say I lost everything, I lost everything. And that was just a huge shift. And it's one of those pivotal moments where you decide to go get a nine to five and do your thing. And I thought, I don't want to do that. I don't want to drop my kids off at six in the morning and pick them up at six at night and never see them and work a nine to five job that doesn't cover the bills. And so I struggled for a while and, you know, to figure out what I was doing, I came up with a Phoenix factor um, because people kept telling me I was a Phoenix, that I was able to reinvent myself. And I wanted to share that process. Thank you so much, Robert, for joining us today to talk a little more about business and purpose-driven business. Uh, tell us a little more about what it is that, uh, what it is that you do. Well, I guess the simplest way to say it is uh, I'm a marketing consultant, but uh, basically uh, what I like to do is provide the business owner with more margin of profit and time. And those things seem to go hand in hand um, because they don't have enough profit. They don't have enough time because they're, they don't have the personnel because they don't can't afford it. Um, but then because they don't have the personnel and the, the time to really build their business the way it should be, they don't generate the profit. So it's kind of like a catch 22. So what I help them do is kind of solve that problem. <laughs> well, very good. So that's, those are good things, creating more profit, more margin and maximizing time yeah yeah well, pretty much that's, well that's great now what would you say for yourself for the the business owners that you do help what is it that they you know you kind of mentioned it here but specifically what is it they you notice that they receive or do you focus on trying to help them to to receive that's maybe different from other people that are in the space well it's just kind of different mindset so you know like i said earlier i, I known as a marketing consultant because that's my experience is all in marketing and sales and so the first thing they're doing is they're, they feel that the problem to solve the solve their profitability issues is to get more customers um, but it really isn't that so the first thing i do is look at what is going on in the business that they're not seeing um, so they everybody's kind of you know when it comes to marketing people are just in this mindset of just more volume that's gonna that's gonna solve their their issues um, and that's not really it so it's really looking at margin 
and where can you increase margin so that you can increase profitability without even increasing more customers. Um, so if you can increase more margin, like just say adjusting your price to be 5% higher, depending on profit margin and sales price can be about 50% in your net. It all depends on the mix of volume and kind of your, your margins that you're already, uh, already working with. Um, so it's kind of a new mindset of looking at your business and how to plan and human with your marketing strategy and your pricing strategy, pricing strategy and all that. So um, really what I bring is just kind of a new mindset into how to, to strategize for your business to increase the profitability of your business without having to increase just a lot more customers. Because if you don't have the right margins and you increase customers, it just puts more stress on the business. Um, if you're already kind of running out of capacity, bringing more customers actually can be a negative because you're going to be working so much harder. Uh, the quality is probably going to suffer. And then your brand, the brand is going to suffer too because your quality is going to suffer. And you can actually lose customers in the long run because you're not able to provide a good customer experience. Um, so it's really about relooking at how you do business, how you do marketing, and how you, number one, is how you provide a great customer experience and how you get better, create better margins for yourself. So you can then reinvest that profit back into things that will increase the value of your, of your business. Interesting. Well, I definitely want to talk a little more and hear more about the different areas where you can create more margin in a business. And we'll mm -hmm. definitely go into, I want to hear more of the story of even how you sort of got down this road, how you got into marketing and how you got to this point. But tell us, so when, when you're saying margin, uh, that, that is interesting. What are the different areas that you would say are kind of key areas where businesses can create more margin? Well, if you start with just the financial end, you know, the way you get profit margin is really the difference between your sales price and your cost of goods, right? I mean, basically simple math, price, sales, sales minus cost of goods equals your gross profit margin. Well, how do you increase that spread? It's so two ways, increasing price or decreasing your cost of goods. Um, and it's usually the combination of two is what's going to do it. So a lot of, from what I've seen, number one is, most business owners or most businesses are underpriced somewhere. <clears throat> we tend to, again, it goes back to what I said earlier. Everybody is on the, in the volume train, trying to figure out how to increase more volume. They figure volume is going to solve the issue, the, the profitability issue. So sometimes what they'll do is, and a lot of times what they do is they'll price themselves a little bit lower than what they think they're really valued at because it's going to drive more customers, right? And usually that's really not the case. Um, and so what it does is just, it just decreases your gross profit margin, your profit margins, and then you have to work that much harder to make the profit you should be making if you just charge the right price. And you don't have to get more customers to get more profit. You just have to just price yourself effectively. And so, but then on cost of goods side, how do you reduce your costs? Well, part of it, maybe you can, you know, if you have a, a product or retail business is try to your acquisition of of materials and supplies and all that. If you can get acquire those costs, acquire those things at a lower cost, then obviously that will increase margin as well. But also being more efficient. So if you have a manufacturer, a manufacturing business or a retail business or any any business that uses people, right? If you can if you can become more efficient with your labor, that will reduce costs. So you can produce actually more with the same amount of labor. So if your production level goes up with the same amount of labor because you're more efficient, then you're, you're, then you're selling more volume, but also your, your cost of goods is lower per unit, right? If you're, if you're the same 10 people make, instead of 100 units, they make 200 units, well, then your cost of goods per unit obviously goes down. So that's another way of reducing your cost of goods, not just by your acquisition prices, but also by being more efficient. 
So looking for those areas to either increase price and or reduce, uh, reduce your costs by being more efficient and or seeing how you can reduce your acquisition costs, that will increase more margins. So little bits and pieces here and there can actually make some huge impact in your bottom line. Because, yeah. go ahead, no. <laughs> no, no that, that, that's interesting. It's, uh, I like the distinction that you're making there really with looking at some of the, the ways to cut costs and again to um, to increase the, the revenue from there. Um, I would be interested, so with with margin then and with the marketing background, so in this case, how do you then focus on trying to, to increase what you can charge for something? Like you, you mentioned to, uh, to be able to charge what you're worth, to be able to charge the, the right price for something. And so I guess coming from a marketing background, how is it that you would approach these different areas to get people to essentially be willing to pay more for particular areas? Well, here's, here's kind of the, the magic in this, and what at least seems like magic, is you just have to understand your own value and figure out what the prices you should be charging. You don't have to get people to pay a higher price. It's really is once you get, once you price yourself what you're worth, customers are very smart. I think they're smarter than what we give them credit for. If, if you increase your price 50%, now is it going to, is it going to mean that you're going to lose some customers? Yeah, there's going to be some people that obviously are going to say hey, that's a little bit too high, right? But the right customers will say this is what I want. You know, we make value judgments based on price, right? If it's too low, if you're promising the world, but you're, you're, but you're charging way less, people are just going to be very suspicious. But if you charge yourself to what it should be based on what you're promising and hopefully you deliver, as long as you deliver it, right? That's the key thing is the value. You have to deliver what you're saying. But as long as you're delivering the value that you're suggesting, then people are going to purchase and they're going to repurchase and they're going to tell their friends. Um, so it's amazing how when we increase our price, like say 15%, um, we don't lose customers. As long as the value is there, we don't lose customers. We actually gain customers because people are now saying, oh, this, is, this must be something pretty good. Um, you know, once you get into that, you know, above that 15% threshold of increasing price, then you start losing customer, but that's okay. It forces you to uh, figure out who is your ideal customer, who is your target audience. You know, people, when I always ask people who your target audience, the basic question, the basic answer is everybody, you know, they're trying to market everybody. Therefore, your marketing message is very diluted. You're not really marketing to anyone, but when you know your value and you know who's your ideal customer, then you create a message just for them and they come running. And so that's interesting. So what you're, what you're highlighting and saying here really is that maybe a lot of people have not spent enough time to really dig into who their target audience is. And if they're mm -hmm. marketing to too many people, they don't know how to price the different areas and they can't necessarily charge their real value because they're, they're spread too thin. They start, yeah, they start pricing to the lowest common denominator, right? They're trying to get more, more volume. And so therefore they go to the pricing war and they price themselves lower to try to get more people. Um, but usually what happens is the same people that pay $10 will probably pay $15, $20. And so, and so it's like, you know, so anyways, it's just kind of a, it's an interesting phenomenon. It just, it, it somewhat time seems magic, um, but it's really not. It's people, people know value. Customers know, I mean, we're both customers, right? And you kind of know how to, uh, uh, you know, kind of kind of how to guess or how to judge value. Um, you know, we're, we're pretty good at, you know, if, if someone was op op offering you to buy, uh, buy a, an iPhone 10, for example, for a hundred bucks, 
uh, you're pretty suspicious. It's going to be at least refurbished if it's not hot. <laughs> so, so you already have some things running through your head if the price seems lower than it should be. Well, you know, it's interesting. So uh, for the podcast, as people are listening, they're not going to be able to see this, but these pair of glasses that I'm holding up, I just bought these glasses. To be honest, I have no idea how much I even paid for them, but I wanted rimless uh, glasses. I, I knew the value of the silhouette uh, frames. And overall, I just knew that I wanted a pair of glasses like this. And mm -hmm. to be honest, I don't even know what I paid for it, but I know it was expensive. <laughs> Do you, do you find more more business owners than not that are finding themselves in this particular situation and they're, mm -hmm. they're needing to figure out how to niche down more effectively uh, mm -hmm. or is it uh, something that you find a lot of a lot of business owners are, are pretty much aware of? Uh, no, a lot of them kind of aren't aware of it. And so, you know, that's why they, they call me and they're trying to increase their profitability. You know, target market is probably one of the things, target market and pricing, um, and they go hand in hand. Target market and pricing are the two areas that people don't spend a lot of time on, in general, all, in business owners in general. They don't really, uh, they really don't spend the time to really figure out who their ideal customer is. They'll do some simple demographics, you know, male, female, age ranges, maybe income levels, maybe location, maybe education. But what about lifestyle? And there's so many factors that go into creating the ideal demographic of your ideal customer. And they don't spend enough time on that. Um, and then therefore, you know, they price themselves kind of to the lowest common denominator to try and attract as many people as possible. So the first thing I do is when I go into with a new client is to uh, do a pricing analysis, basically. Uh, figure out what the value is of the products and services, and then figure out, assess whether or not their pricing is where it should be um, by a number of factors. But basically, usually just kind of simple um, financial projections. It's like, hey, the reason, you know, looking at your, your last 12 months of, of, of profit and loss statements, I mean, your margins are pretty slim. So clearly, you're going to have to make some adjustments in, in the gross margins. You're going to have to figure out, are, is there areas we can increase price? Are there areas that we can reduce costs? Um, but usually you can find areas to reduce price somewhere. Um, in fact, there's probably, I don't know if I've had a client yet that we couldn't increase price somewhere. And so definitely um, that's the first place to start. And when you start to figure out what, what, what you got to figure out is what are you really good at? Right? And if you already have, if you've already been in business, you can find that out just by your own customers. Um, feedback maybe for your employees if you have employees, but get some honest feedback. What are you really good at? Um, because even even with uh, in a similar industry, I mean, just talk about like fast food, right? Not not every fast food business is good at everything. You know, it's either going to be fast service, quality food, you know, or whatever. But they're not going to be great at both. You know, quality and, and uh, speed and, and quality. Um, so you got to figure out what are you really good at, and based on that, you base your marketing message based around that—the thing that you're really good at. But if you say you're trying, to, if you start to say you're really good at everything, well, people are going to figure that out pretty quick once they experience you that you're not good at everything. Um, then you don't have the good the brand recognition of being really good at one thing, right? Because um, so, anyways, I think it comes down to identifying what are you really, really good at. What do you what do you do better at than anybody else in your industry and pick that niche and then you create your marketing message around that. And then, now, do you think that this is something that people should be spending more, more time on at the get go before they start? Oh, absolutely. That's why you do testing before, if you're in a startup phase, 
um, you do a lot of testing. You, you know, if you have a service, well, you start doing it with friends and family, and then you start charging a little bit. You know, before you do your full official launch, do some testing, get some feedback from real customers um, and find out what is it that they really like about you and what is it things that you probably need to improve upon. Um, but spend time on improving the things you're already really good at. The key thing, you know, because whenever we do a SWOT analysis, right, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, uh, a lot of times people are going to really spend a lot of time in, in, in improving their weaknesses, which, I mean, they should in general, but more time should be spent on improving your strengths because you want, just want to be excellent at something as opposed to just being good at a lot of things, right? If you're really excellent at one thing, I mean, Apple, Apple's not, you know, technically speaking, I mean, when you talk to the techie guys, they don't think Apple products, you know, the iPhones are necessarily the best technically, but they're really cool in graphics. They're really cool and just easy use and fun. I mean, that's what they're really good at, <laughs> right? The, the fun factor, um, the, really the marketing, um, but they're not necessarily great technically, but that's okay. But they're also charging twice as much as their, some of their nearest competition. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so it goes to show you don't have to be great at everything. You just have to be really good at something and really hone that message on that and then, and then charge it. And people that really value that, because people, you know, when it comes, like since we're talking about phones, there's, there's a gamut, your, 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 the audience in the industry, you know, your, your potential customers, they all value things differently, right? We don't all value the same thing. We don't all, we're not always looking at the phone, at the cell phone or smartphone for the same reasons. You and I, if we probably asked each other why we picked the phone we did, it would be probably for two different reasons. And so what you're trying to do is really highlight that thing that you're really good at so that it hits, hits home to that customer that is looking for that exact feature or, or, or essence of strength in, in, a, in a product, right? So it's really about the more you can niche your message, the more likely it's gonna hit home to your customer that's looking for that thing and values what, what you're offering. Interesting, so, so, so tell us here, so, to get to the point where you're uh, helping really with this type of price analysis and you mentioned that you have the marketing background, can you walk us through how you went from, you know, how did you get passionate and interested in marketing? And then what, what did that, that, that journey look like for you? And then bring us up to speed of from there to the point where you're really kind of focusing here on this type of consulting. <laughs> well, the number one pricing is marketing. It's part of the marketing mix. So if anybody knows marketing, you know, the four P's of marketing make up the marketing mix for your strategy, right? Product, promotion, placement, and price. So pricing is actually a marketing function, but people assume, and it obviously does have financial implications. So it is a financial piece, but it also is part of the marketing strategy. Um, Unfortunately, the only time people use pricing as a marketing strategy is by lowering the price or discounting. <laughs> they never think about pricing what they're worth as a marketing strategy. Um, but, you know, my, my experience, I got a marketing degree uh, in college, got a bachelor's in business and, and concentrated in marketing. Uh, worked for Coca-Cola distributor in San Jose when I first graduated. I worked for them for a few years and then went on to the pharmaceutical industry where I spent the, the rest of my 20-year career, uh, at least in the corporate area in marketing and sales. And, um, and about two and a half years ago, um, I launched my consulting business. And actually before that, I started doing some, you know, kind of a side hustle thing to kind of test, do I want to do this thing full time? Um, do I like it? And kind of hone even what I was going to do as a, as a niche, as a consultant, right? So, so even as a, as a marketing consultant, I had to figure out what my niche was going to be. And what happened was it was actually one of my mentors, Cam McConnell, 
who is uh, ex-CEO, CFO, and right now he's kind of like an outsource, kind of a fractional C CFO. But he wrote a book and it had a lot to do with pricing. So he, he actually told me one time we we're having lunch and he says, you know, pricing, if you, if you learn pricing really well, um, that's going to be the open doors for your marketing consulting business. And I thought about it for a little bit. And I was like, huh. And I was actually reading, he gave me his transcript and uh, my wife and I went for like a long weekend down in the Hotel Dell in Coronado Island. And so I'm at the pool and I'm reading his book and I get to the pricing section, I'm reading and I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm pricing myself wrong <laughs> for my own consulting business. And then I said, okay, so that became an aha moment. And then as I started helping other people and really started to hone in on pricing, as I started to be very intentional about asking my clients, for their uh, profit and loss statements and looking at their margins and then doing assessments. And then when we start investigating, I started asking, okay, how did you set your price? Because they're in business, I just assumed they kind of went through the same pricing, um, you know, strategy and planning sessions that I, I've done even with my past companies. Um, but clearly they didn't. They, they really had more of a um, kind of almost a random approach, even if they had math involved, like saying, take the cost of goods and market up a certain percentage. Um, but which is kind of typical, right? They could take their cost of goods and just market up a certain percentage because they want to try and achieve a certain margin. Well, that doesn't really assess value. That's just kind of a math equation, right? They're just taking a random margin that they want and they're just going to do the math. Um, but it really doesn't assess value. And value, when it comes down to it, value is something that's very, very subjective. And so that's why it's so hard to set a value-based price for people because they don't understand, they don't, they can't figure out their own value. So that's why they go to the math equation to try and figure out based on a simple math equation, what's a price that might make sense and, do I f and where do I fit within the competition? And then they start kind of assessing themselves amongst the competition. So now they're assessing themselves based on somebody else's value, not their own, right? They're saying, okay, my competition, they, I think they're good at this. And like I said, not every business is good at everything. And so how do you even assess their value against yours? I mean, it's just, you, just can't, you can't compare. And so what all it does is it really takes the eye off of you. So you need to really spend time in assessing your own values. So, you know, most of my clients, a lot of my clients, it's the first, it's the first time for me in their industry helping them. And so because of that, I, I look that as a plus because what I do, and even if I've been in an industry already with a, a previous client, I don't look at the competition. I want to assess them and their value based on them, not anybody else. Because the moment I start looking at the competition, it starts to bias my own opinion about them. And then so that doesn't do anybody any good. You, you can't compare. You, that's, that's, like the, the, that's like the sin, the optimal sin of coming up with your value-based price is once you start comparing. Um, so I, I don't compare. <laughs> so I figure out what are, what are you guys worth? And then we figure out, okay, who's your ideal customer? Who would pay this amount? And then it starts to really narrow your focus on who is your target market. Um, and so, you know, there's one client where we raised the price 86%. And so they said, you know, they gulped. They had, there was a big silent moment in the room. They gulped and they said, our customers won't pay. I said, well, maybe some won't, but some will. So we just got to figure out who that is. Um, and so we went through the process of identifying their, their target audience. And with that price increase though, it reduced the amount of volume they had to sell by 70% because now they have more margin, right? So now we don't have to work night and day to sell a thousand units. Now we only have to sell 300 units to actually make a profit. 
<clears throat> this is super interesting, actually. I think this is blowing my mind a little bit. And so the idea of being able to assess the value by really looking at yourself, and there's so much talk online about branding and about building out your, you know, marketing and network attracting ideal clients. And in this branding concept, I almost wonder how much of that is super subjective and based off of what people are seeing from what other people are doing. This is very technical, very specific, really looking at the establishment of the business and really seeing how you can quantify what your brand is and who your audience is. It's almost a, almost a statistical technical way of determining the target audience versus subjectively thinking about it. Yeah. I mean, there's still some subjectivity to it, but at the end of the day, you do, you know, you start with the pricing factor. You've had to figure out what are you worth? What do you need to charge? Number one, what do you need to charge to actually make a profit? Because a lot of times when they pick their price, no matter how they pick their price, oftentimes they don't project out what it's actually going to take to actually make a profit. And then, so in the case of the last client I was telling you about, you know, these are hand, for the most part, handmade uh, machines. They have to sell a thousand. When I ran the projections, you know, they weren't making a profit at that point. The owners weren't even paying themselves at, at that point. When I ran the projections, I said, you don't have the capacity and the manpower to produce enough units to make a profit. So you're going to have to price yourself at this amount just to make a profit based on your current capacity. So it wasn't a, this is a nice to have, this was an absolute. I said, when you do the math, you go, look, how are you going to make, you tell me how you're going to make a profit based on your current capacity and what you're paying for supplies, what you're paying for labor and all that. Um, unless something changes drastically, um, you know, you're not going to make a profit. So that's where we had that. That's when they had to say, okay, we have to charge that much. <laughs> and then we went, okay, now who's our target audience. Right. And so anyways, you kind of back in the target audience. A lot of people start with their target market and then they try to fit their pricing to that. Um, but then what if you can't make a profit at that price? <laughs> right? So, so that, that's the one, the one Achilles heel for a lot of business owners is once they set the price, they don't even project out what it's going to take to make a profit. Interesting. Well, well tell us, so when you made the transition from corporate then to your own business and the consulting, how did you do, how did you apply this to make a smooth transition and to determine how you were pricing yourself and how you were approaching the transition? What did that look like for you? Well, those are two big questions. The transition and then my price. The simple one and the pricing one, that's a simple one. Um, my mentor, he just told me I need to double my price. <laughs> so, so, and so I'm like, and I did the big gulp. I'm like, what? You know, how are we going to? Um, so actually, this is probably a good example for a lot of people out there because, you know, my running through my head, even when I told him, I said, look, I haven't consulted very long. I've just done this on the side for a little bit. Um, you know, I don't really have experience as a consultant. So who's going to pay me double of what I'm currently charging? And then he said, well, who do you work for? And I said, well, Bristol Myers Squibb. I said, how much do they pay you? X amount. Um, how much in sales have you produced for them over the course of the years? And I said, well, about $150, 160000000 million, whatever the case may be. I said, okay, so you basically consulted for them in a sense and raised money for them. And they paid you X amount of dollars. So you got to at least make that. And what is it going to take? What do you need to price yourself at X amount of clients a year to be able to produce that same dollar amount. And I said, well, the basic came down to basically almost doubling my price. Um, and to put that in perspective is like, even though I wasn't technically consulting for the companies I worked for, 
I was still a marketing sales consultant because I was still producing for them. Um, so he says, hey, if they're going to pay you this amount, why shouldn't anybody else pay you that amount? I said, good point. <laughs> so, so a lot of times as business owners or startups, we, we use the excuse of not having experience to be able to command a certain price. Well, I think you, they probably have some kind of experience and some kind of worth and some kind of value to be able to, to validate whatever price they need to charge in order to make a profit. Um, so that's a simple question to answer the question, that question, but the, the transition part, that was, that's a little bit more of a, that's a little more discussion. Um, you know, it took me about five, six years before I actually transitioned to do it full time. Um, and, and for a number of reasons. And I think uh, long story short, you know, those six years actually, you know, if I would have left any time earlier, um, I don't think I would have been as prepared, not, not so much just prepared to do consulting, but really about understanding what I'm supposed to do as a business. And not just as a consultant and really focusing in on pricing and value-based pricing as kind of a lead-in to really do marketing better. But it's also about what kind of companies I want to help um, and even what type of communities I might have a passion to really help. So part of my purpose statement in my own, my own website is transforming communities, cities, and nations by really establishing purpose-led businesses. And so what I mean by that is purpose-led businesses are businesses that are, are profitable but also know part of their um, – part of the reason of being a business is to also give back to the community they serve because it's not about taking, 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 but it's also about giving back. Right. And the community they serve is giving to them either through purchasing their product or just providing the space for them to exist. And, you know, maybe just, you know, the goodwill that, or, you know, the good branding recognition that they're, they're giving this company. So anyways, you know, there's an obligation to give back. Um, and if, you know, if you get a, number, a good amount of these type of purpose-led business in, a, in any given community, it really does transform the, the, the community. Um, because, you know, if all these businesses are also giving back, employing people, all that kind of stuff. Um, it really does positively impact the community. So one of the things I do is I, I currently work within, you know, um, a Native American reservation in, in Montana, the state of Montana. Um, helping them develop and build and grow business. So that's also the other side of what I do. Um, and, you know, really that came out of really those six years of trying to figure out what it is and really um, kind of honing in on, on that on that passion and say, look, I'm not just going to do help business just to help business. I go, is it, what's the long-term connection to, what's the long-term impact that these businesses can have? So I love working with these uh, privately held family-run businesses um, that also know that giving back is a, is a crucial element of what they do. Interesting. Yeah, you mentioned that. So uh, with the purpose that a business uh, has, so uh, how critical do you think that is in making a business long-term viable or with them to, to be able to, to create more value, that purpose and having that purpose and yeah. that mission statement, how important is that? Purpose is huge. You know, it's kind of synonymous having a mission statement, but too many times business and mission statements are more just uh, dressing on the wall. Um, you know, it's really, they kind of almost use it as a marketing tool. Um, just kind of ran through this a uh, couple days ago um, with an organization I'm on the board of. And I said, look, they're kind of, they're, as they're developing their kind of their why, their mission statement, they kind of were using it as a marketing tool. And I was like, look, this mission statement or purpose statement, however you want to call it, is an internal document, number one. Now, you can have it on your marketing cloud, or that's foremost, it's for the, it's for the staff, it's for the business, because it's what drives you. Why do you exist? 
What is that big why? What is it beyond just the profit? What is that thing that you're driven to do? What kind of impact do you want to make with your customers, the communities and all that? That to me, when you have a strong purpose statement, mission statement that the whole team is rallying around, that will, that will drive your business to greater success than anything else. Because having a shared vision is huge. That's well documented. When an organization is working with a shared vision, they're much more productive. They feel also more, more fulfilled because it goes beyond just the bottom line. There's a bigger reason of why they're doing business just be, besides selling widgets, right? When there's a greater sense of what they're gonna do with the community, with the people that their customers, their employees, whatever, whatever that greater good is, that drives people. And especially when everybody's working and it's, and it's a true statement and it starts from the top and it has to be led by the, 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 the president of the company. It has to be led by the owner of the company. They, they've got to drive that why. It's got to be true to them. It's got to be authentic to them. But when they're doing it, everybody rallies. You can become a much more productive and cohesive team. You become much more efficient, right? And that drives down costs. <laughs> you have less mistakes. You create better quality. There's more care and concern into what they're doing because now they're not just putting in a widget and selling a widget, but now they're doing it because they know there's something greater that, that's going to happen from, from the income that they're producing. Um, now they're all going the same direction, right? And so that is huge because that really sets the course for organization. And, you know, and in any business, if you've been in business long enough, there's peaks and values to any business. And when you're only driven by finance, as soon as there's a little bit of dip in your, in your business, um, it's easy to kind of give up, maybe close up shop, <laughs> file bankruptcy, whatever. But when you have the why and you're driven for something beyond that, now you figure out a reason. How am I, you know, now the owner's getting out of bed and saying, we got to do this because there's something greater that's at stake here besides just, you know, the widgets that we're selling. Yeah. So the why is huge. That, that's something I think quite a lot about when it comes to entrepreneurship and maybe why I'm so drawn to the concept and the idea of entrepreneurship is, you know, why do people fail and why do people succeed? What is it that's going to get you up when you fall down? And that, that why seems to be something that's a differentiating factor. Um, you know, this might be a good transition too. So, it, you know, I was, the way that we came into contact really was through uh, Nehemiah Project and that might be something that you care to share a little bit about. I was really impressed with at Nehemiah Project. That was a you know a graduation of sorts, really, for people that were presenting their business. And I was super impressed with the depth of the presentation that the graduates were sharing and presenting their business. And from what I understand, that was a is that a two year process that that took for them to go through. Okay. To, Thankfully, no. <laughs> okay. It was three months. It's three months. Is that right? It might have seemed like, it might have seemed like two years for them, but uh, it, was, it was just three months. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's a three-month course. Basically, it's, you know, it's a, it's a faith-based, faith-based course to really, but it's really about helping them develop their purpose-led business plan. And it starts with the why. And, you know, it's interesting. The why usually comes from your own journey. Um, it's, and that's why we kind of talk about telling your story. The story does a lot of things. When you know your story, the ups and downs of your own life, um, you'll start to see even, even business, every business owner, I pretty much just about every business owner I've, 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 as clients that I've had, when I've asked their story, there's usually something in the story that is connected to why they're doing their business. Um, a lot of times it's sometimes a redemptive quality and what, what's going on. So I know one client I had is, um, she has an accounting firm and she grew up in China, grew up poor, 
but actually they weren't poor initially. The, the parents actually had a lot, of, a lot of real estate, but because of communism, the government took basically uh, took over their their took their properties basically, and they end up she ended up growing poor. That's what she knew growing up. Um, so basically, there's a lot of there's governmental injustice that happened there. Now, as a as an accountant. You know, whenever her, any of her clients is getting some, what she feels is a, or looks at as an unjust, um, some kind of IRS uh, ruling, um, they're asking the, the client to pay, you know, X amount of dollars, um, sometimes even millions of dollars. And she feels, she looks at it and she goes, that's not right. Um, she'll fight tooth and nail for that client. And there's a huge, she had a huge um, judgment reverse of $7 million for a client. Um, I mean, that was huge. and got the state senator involved. I mean, she went to bat for this client and she's a sweet Asian lady. I mean, you, you look at her, you meet her, you talk to her, sweet gal, but man, when it comes to business and something like that, when something that she feels is unjust, man, her, her, her the hair comes up in the back of her head. And I, I said, well, it probably comes from the fact that your parents lost everything from the government. <laughs> so, so there's a good tie in. So there's this, you know, she's a good accountant. She's a great tax accountant. One thing she's really good at is that aspect of her business. Um, because there's just something there that's kind of emotional and passionate. So it's kind of, it's kind of interesting how when you explore your past, you start to see why you're doing what you're doing. And that's also a branding issue because, you know, this is, we kind of, we kind of branded her as kind of have with a superhero image. Um, and so anyways, when you know your story, you also know your why and you start to understand your own brand because this is why you do what you do. And this is kind of who you are. Right, the brand, the purpose is about the who you are, not about just what you do as a business. But people buy brands, right? They'll they'll negotiate on price for commodities, but they buy brands, and it's about understanding what the essence of that business is. And when you can somehow communicate the essence of who you are as a business, that's that's great branding right there. Absolutely, I always think of I'm not this. Not sure if I answered your question, but <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I think we could probably talk on this for so much more. But I, I always think of this moat. You know, I, I think I got the concept from Warren Buffett. But the moat, and so the brand is almost like a moat, and it creates when you you create a bigger moat, it's harder for people to go across and traverse, and ultimately it separates you so much more, and uh, it's it's almost it's difficult to quantify the value of uh, of that chasm. So, well, let's do this, Robert. This was, was really very interesting and I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, you know, to talk with us here. Tell us, uh, so in terms of for what you're working on right now and what you're passionate about kind of working for going forward, you know, what, what does that look like at the moment? It's interesting. Uh, yeah, I'm actually in the middle, midst of a transition right now. I'm constantly evolving, I guess, what I do as a consultant. But, you know, the essence of what I do with the pricing and branding and the marketing, it's still, it's still there. Kind of adding on a new layer this year, which is uh, really targeting couples that, have, you know, that own a business. Um, they both don't have, not both of them have to work in the business, but obviously at least one of them owns a business and they're married. And we help them in strengthening their interpersonal relationship as well as their business at the same time. And, you know, what I found is that, um, you know, when your home life isn't happy, it really affects the business. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> And so, I I said, you know, why don't we start there? You know, because you know, as, as a consultant, you know, as you get to know your client, you know, you start talking about personal stuff, you know, both ways. And so I end up, sometimes I end up putting a counseling hat on. Um, and then, you know, there's sometimes when I'm meeting with a client at a meeting and I'm, you know, it's 
it's not about business anymore. You know, they start divulging some things and I go, you know, today is not the day to talk about business. Today is obviously the time to talk about what they're dealing with and seeing how we can help. And maybe just being, sometimes just being a sounding board. Um, so anyways, I just said, you know, <laughs> if we help them in their home life, um, their business life will be much better too. Um, but also kind of skills that you, you learn in betting, being better as a husband and a wife, uh, which comes down to interpersonal relationship, um, comes down to communication, and all things you hear about or what kind of breaks down in a, in a marriage. When you strengthen those things up, you bring that same skill into your business to develop better relationships with your employees or staff, to have better communication. You know, what are some things that often break down in dysfunctional business? Communication. Nobody knows what they're doing. The, the business owner might know, but he doesn't communicate anything. <laughs> so, and so everybody's running by the seat of their pants. Everything changes on the dime. I mean, there's all kinds of communication issues that, that, uh, that breaks down in a business. And it usually starts from the top. So we got to teach the business owner and the leadership how to be better communicators, how to be better problem solvers, how to be better conflict resolvers, how to prevent conflict. Um, so let's just start at home because most likely that same skill set or not is also happening at home. So let's help you at home in a small environment, which is husband and wife, and let's bring that same skill set into the business. Um, so let's make both sides whole. And so the model that we came up with is building thriving marriages and prosperous business. And so that's kind of the new wrinkle that we're adding into um, our consulting business. Interesting. Can you say that one more time? So creating thriving, <laughs> developing thriving business and, and prosperous, or, I'm sorry, developing thriving marriages and prosperous businesses. Thriving marriages and prosperous businesses. I love it. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. So awesome. And now, and so if somebody does want to connect with you, uh, somebody wants to follow you, connect with you, has a question for you, what are the best ways for people to connect with you? Well, because you're a LinkedIn guy, you can connect with me on LinkedIn, Robert Fakui. I'm one of only two Robert Fakuis, I think, on LinkedIn. Actually, I think I'm probably the only Robert Fakui on LinkedIn. <laughs> so, and so it'll be easy to find. Um, and I got some, I got, I have some cheat sheets and, and kind of stuff, ebook on there for on pricing. So you can go there because that's where you can actually get some information and some, some downloads. Um, or you can just email me directly, uh, Robert at I61, so the letter I, the number 61, businessdevelopment.com, and I'll get that. And then so so either, either, either of those two ways are, are ways to get a hold of me. I check my LinkedIn every day, so. <laughs> great, great. Everybody should. Everybody should. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll definitely, I'll put links to everything here when we get the podcast up. Right. And so other than this, we did, this is broadcasting on Facebook too. So if anybody has a question, can definitely connect with you there. So other than that, really appreciate it. And so many different avenues to be able to go into, I think from everything you've talked about. And so I think this was really very interesting. So thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be on. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. All right, Robert, have a, have a good night. All right. Thanks. You too. Sleep there. <laughs>
And if you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe so you get first notification of all upcoming episodes. And if you really like us and you want to help more people hear us, be sure to write a review, a five-star review, and let everybody know how Errol helps entrepreneurs. Yeah, and I also think there's a democratization of um, skill sets that um, allow people to be dangerous even as novices, right? So, um, you know, I think one of the most important things in any business or product is really good design thinking. I think that's really important for people to think through how things are going to work, either for their user as an interface or how they feel about the logo or, or right down to, um, you know, how many steps in a process. I think that's really important. So I'd never say that, you know, anybody can design, but I would say that, um, you know, if you go to producthunt.com, you know, every day you can definitely find resources that are like free templates for PowerPoint made by real designers that are going to make you look better as a presenter than you've ever looked before. Right. There's no code application development tools where I could go build a forum in a few days without having to do anything. I can buy a theme and, you know, watch a couple YouTube videos and launch an app. And, 